I'm going to take the next question from Joe, who is a physicist. And Joe, I know you're going to be listening to this discussion, and I, I hope you'll give us some feedback on it and see if we can get some things rolling. But Joe is asking, during the 9-11 event that was observed across the random number generators that were operating worldwide, the random number generators exhibited a drifting bias, often null uniform randomness. This drift off random started prior to the event and continued for some time afterwards. Is that an example of the collective consciousness experiencing precognition or some percentage of those within the collective that perhaps have lower entropy and experiencing the precognition and hence affecting the randomness of the RNG? Yeah. Yeah. The, kind of, the short answer to that is yes, it is. Okay. We have uh, probable reality and the probable reality probably in the days leading up to this, it was pretty probable that this was going to take place because there was all these committed people and they had planned it and they had trained and they had the whole scheme and it looked like it would work. And if you could read all the probabilities at the time, it would be a pretty high probability that we were going to have this, uh, this World Trade Center uh, issue happen with the planes running into it. So that was probably weeks ahead of time. Uh, this probability went pretty high. So that, that was was around okay that's in that's in play if you will now there's a couple of ways to look at it one that the fact that that was available to us in consciousness and we do get into those databases whether we know it or not we do have that's what our we call our intuition okay we have intuition and what is intuition we, we get information out of the past and the probable future databases you know that's our intuition so we whether we make a conscious effort to do it or whether it just happens in the background in our mind without our, you know, without us uh, actually purposely doing it, we still get into those databases. So yes, that would sh show that there was a kind of a collective consciousness knowing that something big was about to break. Now, what does that have to do with random number generators? Well, it may not be causal uh, in the sense that it may not have caused the random number generators to do that. The random number generators may have just done that on their own. And part of that would be the larger consciousness system made that correlation for us to find. Just because it would show us a connection about consciousness, the larger consciousness, the, uh, the uh, what can we say, the archetypal consciousness or, or uh, uh, collective consciousness. And it would show us how this interacts with our physical world like random number generators. So it could be just a, an artifact left, left at the scene of the crime, if you will, to give us some clues. Okay, that may be one way to look at it. Another way to look at it may have been that this was a very disturbing vibe in the collective consciousness. And that very disturbing vibe had a lot of, um, you know, anxiety attached to it and that anxiety attached to it is what actually biased the the random numbers you know that's a possibility if you have random number generators like oliver has you know that uh they will tend to reflect your not, not necessarily your mood but your mental state if you are watching them and kind of connected with them you stand in front of the screen like oliver's random number generator and you can see the random numbers running out in a row, as you as your mental energy kind of focuses on something, particularly if it's something that's scattered, you might see fluctuations in those random numbers more than if, say, you were just lying there asleep, you know, in, in delta sleep, not dreaming, just lying there asleep. You might see a, a more even, less scattered pattern. But as you got up and moved away and got excited about things and found anxiety and got upset and said, oh, no you'd find that those numbers would fluctuate more. You'd have more effect on them. So it could just be something like that going on, that uh, there really was a cause and effect there, not just a, uh, um, you know, not, not just a, a fact that the larger conscious system threw us, a, threw us a clue. Either way, but yes, you're right. It's, it's that kind of a thing is what's, is what's going on. 
Okay, Tom, Joe has another question too, because not only is he also a physicist, but he does explore the larger consciousness system as well. Um, he has a question on the importance of meditation in our lives. It appears that meditation and learning how to meditate and experiencing the various nuances involved with meditation provides a basis for improving our awareness, focus of attention, and intention in our lives, and hence provides us a means to learn how to improve the quality of consciousness. Could you please elaborate on the importance of meditation as it for improving awareness, addressing our ego and fears, and improving the quality of consciousness? And this might be the key for maybe some of the other physicists out there to uh, put some meditation in their life and maybe, um, you know, consider the double slit experiment again. <laughs> yeah, all the things he said about the meditation are true. That's exactly right. It does all those things. It, uh, it helps you focus. It helps get rid of the noise. It helps you. It gives you a connection to the larger consciousness system. It opens you up to other possibilities. It enables you to see bigger pictures. Uh, it'll help you uh, find your own problems and difficulties because when you get in that meditative state, people often run into their fears, you know, things that they need to deal with. Well, those fears are keeping them from, from growing or keeping them from uh, finding, you know, deeper meaning. And the first thing they have to do is get rid of those fears. And often those fears will come jump on you when you're in a meditation state. Why? Because you've, you've, you keep your mind busy in order to keep the fears away. It's like keeping the light on to keep the boogeyman out of the closet. You know, as soon as you turn off the light, you know, boogeyman appear in the closet and appear under your bed when you're five years old. It's, uh, well, what a lot of people do is they keep a constant level of noise going in their minds so they don't actually have to deal with reality because reality is scary. They've got fears there. So it's like leaving the light on at night. People leave the TV on all the time. Why? Because there's this constant background of jabber and noise and stuff going on, and that keeps them from any quiet time where they would actually have to deal with themselves and their problems. So they always have a hum a hum a hum going on in their background so they don't have to come face-to-face -face with themselves. There's always something else that's, that's grabbing their attention. And if they start to feel like they might, think of something, uh, you know, uh, important, like their own problems. Well, they call somebody on the phone. They'll, uh, you know, turn, do something else to distract themselves. So we have a lot of people who just keep background noise going always so that they don't actually have to come to terms with their, with reality, with themselves, with who they are and their fears. And when they meditate, of course, they're, they're, they're learning how to strip all that noise and junk away. And once they get it all stripped away, well, often there they are, eyeball to eyeball with all of that stuff that they've been pushing under the rug all those years. So meditation can be very therapeutic as well as relaxing, as well as introduce you to the larger consciousness system, as well as give you entree to things like remote viewing and healing and lots of other things can, can uh, materialize out of, out of meditation. Meditation is a very good thing for us to do. Now, if we didn't live in these busy, hectic lives, we probably wouldn't need it as much as we do. But meditation is particularly important for us in the West, even though it's basically an Eastern art form, if you will, or, or an Eastern process. It, uh, well, I shouldn't really say that. Meditation's everywhere, and people have been doing it forever in all corners of the globe. But we in the West who have so much noise in our life and we're so e easily able to sweep things that, that matter under the rug, meditation will let all that come out. Meditation is a wonderful tool, but it's just a tool. And eventually, you have to let go of the tool and just do the meditation. In other words, if you're doing a mantra, eventually you have to know when to let the mantra go. You need to have to know when to let the observation of breath go. Otherwise, you won't go but so far. It'll trap you in a, a certain altered state and you won't be able to get beyond it. So eventually, let it, you know, let it go. You get to a point where you have this noise in your head, noise in your head. All right, you need the, the focus on the breath. You need the mantra. You need to trace the mandala with your eyes or the candlelight or whatever it is you do. You need all that to help you deal with the noise. But once you can let the noise go without it, then you don't need it. 
then it becomes something else to do. The actual meditation process then becomes another piece of noise. So you have to let it go too. So the last, the last piece of noise you let go is the, is the meditation process itself. And then you need to be able to stay in that altered state without any aids, without any mantras, without any, uh, you know, phrases or chanting or anything else. You just become consciousness, aware piece of consciousness. So meditation is a great tool, particularly in the West. And uh, it is, has a lot of advantages and you don't have to go so far as, as uh, you know, point consciousness or, or uh, being able to use your intent to get into the databases or heal or you don't have to go that far at all. Just doing meditation, just to relax and try to empty your mind of the noise is a very good exercise in itself. So even if you don't take it, but so far, it's still a very good thing to do, but it, to be f- effective, you can't do it you know, once every other month. You have to do it like every day. It's a thing that accumulates over time. Okay, Tom. I think um, other, other factors that filter um, or dull our awareness and, and we use as, as filters against receiving this information um, from the larger consciousness system would be, I think you would say drugs, alcohol, sugar, cigarettes. You can see why people are... Um, attached to these or addicted to these and how it kind of dulls our awareness. I think you, in addition to the noise, our whole, well, that creates noise, you know, psychotropic drugs, you know, mess with your consciousness. They make your consciousness unstable. So if you're going to have an unstable consciousness, then that's not, that's high entropy, not, not low entropy. So all of those things do get in the way. And, and our culture is is a you know we have a drug culture now we talk about you know it's the teeny boppers down on the block you know it's the teenagers and the bad children that are doing the drugs and that sort of thing not true our whole culture is drug based you get a promotion what do you do you go drink right let's go out and have a drink got a promotion you have a child is born what do you do smoke a cigar right take a drink you whatever happens Anything that happens in your life that's, that's notable and not mundane is an excuse to take a drug. And our whole culture is that way. Anything you do, anything that's special, go take a drug. Wow, you know, so-and-so just won you know, $1,000 in the lottery. Let's go drink some beer, you know, let's celebrate. Well, celebrate means go take drugs. So if it's something worth celebrating, then it's something worth taking some drugs for. You know, and that's, you know, and that's caffeine too, you know, and the, the, the more minor drugs, if you will, the, the smaller uh, uh, psychotropic drugs, you know, well, it's, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night. Well, let's take caffeine. You know, it's just, uh, we have a drug culture. I've got a headache, take a drug. You know, my, I got this itch on my elbow, take a drug, you know, whatever it is, our reaction to it in this culture is take a drug. Drugs fix everything. You're feeling blue. You're not so happy. Take a drug. You know, you're too happy and too excited. Take a different drug. And that's just the nature of our culture. So we are, you know, on drugs. Some of them are prescription drugs and some of them are just over-the-counter drugs and some of them may be illegal drugs, but it doesn't matter. We People are taking drugs every day. Most people you know, if you classify sugar as a drug, which it's another psychotropic substance, as far as what it does and how it acts in the body, it's a drug. You know, I mean, what makes a drug a drug, right? Because they sell it you know, for a, you know, because a doctor prescribes it. Well, that's not always true either. Sugar would qualify as a drug, and most people will take that five, six, seven times every day. We talk about never coming down. You know, we, we stay on that sugar high perpetually, at least in our culture, our culture, everything has sugar in it. You have to really focus to get away from it. So yes, that's another thing that muddles the mind and creates all that noise and makes it difficult for people to focus and and find that still place. So that's, uh, yeah, it's another big problem. You're right. It's not, uh, it's not just 
trying to hide their problems under a rug, but uh, our minds and our nervous systems are, are jittery and pushed this way and pulled that way and unstable almost all the time just because of the culture we live in. It's a very druggy culture. Right. Thank you. The next question comes from Susan from the MBT Forum. It's a question on belief in false information. Imagine that someone's not feeling well and goes to the doctor. The doctor performs a test and then misreads the results. The doctor communicates the incorrect information to the patient and to other doctors as well. Does the fact that a lot of people believe the incorrect information to be true raise the probability that it will become true? Yes, it does. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will come true. It just means it raises the probability that it will come true. On the other hand, and the thing that's probably, that's the bad news, maybe. The good news is that you, as the individual they're talking about, you, the patient, have more impact on what happens in your body than they do. So even if you have a bunch of doctors talking about the wrong thing, uh, that's not going to bother you as much as you believe the wrong thing. If they tell you, the patient, and now you start thinking about it or worrying about it or whatever, then you also create that. But you're more powerful at changing things in your own system than, are, than they are, unless, of course, they're really trained in this and they can focus their intent. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about just, you know, doctors talking about the subject. Yes, it does, in some small way, modify those probabilities. All right, Tom, the next question is from John from the, John from the MBT Forum. Um, and from an MBT perspective, what is humor? Um, as Why do we laugh? Is this a virtual reality thing? I would ask, I would intersect, uh, is there humor in MPMR? Um, does all consciousness when the larger, within the larger experience experience laughter? If so, what kind of, what a person finds funny reflect their level of entropy? Um, he finds certain things funny. Why do I and others find it funny, say like the Three Stooges or something like that? Is it purely our genetics or is it from the being level? It's from the being level. And yes, humor is everywhere. You find humor in the non-physical and all virtual realities uh, everywhere. Humor is just a way of looking at the data, right? You get data and you get information and you know how to interpret it. Well, sometimes you can interpret it in a way that's just funny. So, you know, well, maybe it's like this, and you know, and that's funny. So it's just, yeah, it's just part of being a consciousness and dealing with data and having to interpret the data you think of maybe six ways you could interpret that data and three of them are funny, you see? So that's just us. We as consciousness have a sense of humor. And yes, our sense of humor does relate to the quality of our consciousness. You know, sometimes people find, find a misery uh, funny. They find, you know, uh, torture funny. They find uh, all kinds of horrible things funny. I mean, all you have to do is look at a sitcom, right? Go back in time and I haven't watched TV for so many years. I'm not too current on this, but uh, you know, find a sitcom where the whole sitcom is about people tearing each other down, uh, you know, making, uh, you know, uh, doing things that hurt each other, and so on. And people laugh at it. They think that's fun. Oh, look at that guy! You know, she just hit him over the head with a rolling pin. Ah, that's funny. You see, well, some you're just you're interacting something violent going on there, and some people find it funny. Some people you know, say, wow, that's awful. I don't find it funny at all. Change the channel. It depends. You know, there are, uh, yeah, humor can be pretty twisted as well as, uh, as, as be a helpful thing. It can also turn into a very twisted thing if the person is twisted, but that, that goes with the person and the quality of the individual, but humor is everywhere. It's fundamental. Okay, Tom, there was a, sometimes I look for some questions that are comments on YouTube, and uh, one of them stood out to me, um, and I think it's from a recent interview that we posted, which stated that you have only two assumptions. This comment um, states that um, you're assuming the existence of free will. Would you say that's an assumption? Um, he says, it is fairly easy to test and prove that the will cannot be free, but to prove that it is free has failed, apart from the religious claims. Uh, do you, what would you respond to that? <laughs> well, it is, free will comes from an assumption 
yeah, my free will is an assumption, but it's not a new assumption. Time, you could call an assumption, but that's not a new assumption. When you start out with my first assumption, which is that there is an awareness. There is an awareness that is aware of it being in state one or state two. All right, you've already... You've already created time because state one and state two, you know, now I'm in one and now I'm in two. Change. Change defines time. So the assumption of this awareness brings with it an assumption of time. Okay. And this awareness evolves that state one and two that it can create multiple states and many states. And you've all heard me go through this in the book and in the various things. And that means that it's doing things purposefully. It's got a, a point. There is evolution. Well, evolution, you can't have evolution without choice, right? Evolution doesn't work without choice. Evolution doesn't work without time. So I've got two fundamental assumptions is consciousness and evolution. And with those, as part of those, because of those, you know, as subsets of those, however you want to say it, you get things like free will, time, and virtual reality. Now, why virtual reality? Because you cannot, if once you break apart into multiple systems that have to communicate, you can't communicate without a virtual reality that defines what communication means. You see, you can't have two things talking to each other without first some kind of rule defining how to talk. So that's the first virtual reality. I think I said that earlier. So all of these things basically come out of those, they are logical consequences of those two assumptions. So they're not new assumptions. They're logical consequences of the first two assumptions. And he is wrong about it's easy to show that, uh, that uh, free will doesn't exist. He's talking about experiments. And, of course, he doesn't really understand what's going on in his experiments. They, they do an experiment and they jump to the conclusion that free will doesn't exist. And it's, it's just a wrong conclusion. It started back in the 60s with a, with a uh, psychologist, I think, named LeBay, who did some experiments, which since... Uh, the same kind of experiments that are even more sensitive now have been done. And what they did is they had a, it was like a stimulus and response. So just to make an example, uh, when the bell rings, raise your hand. Okay, that's a stimulus and a response set up. Now, this is not what they did. I'm just making a simple analogy here. So when, when the bell rings, raise your hand. And what they'd find is that just before the bell rang, little tiny potentials that they were measuring down in the muscle tissue and at other places would start to change in preparation for motion. And this was occurring just before the bell rang. So the bell is almost ready to ring and you see these tiny little potentials that are starting to develop kind of pre-motion, if you will. Now the arm hadn't just moved yet to raise the hand, but it's getting ready to move to raise the hand because these are electromechanical biological processes and they are slow as molasses as far as, uh, you know, consciousness processes, you know, are, are like instantaneous. But raising an end is something that takes a long time. Well, what they concluded was, well, the, the hand starts to raise, raise before the bell's rung. Therefore, the, perp, the consciousness, the person isn't consciously raising their hand after they hear the bell. So there's no volition there. The hand's raising all by itself before the bell's even rung. Therefore, there's no free will. Well, that's just nonsense. It doesn't work like that. They're confusing lots of things when they say that. So when he says it can be proved easily that, he's talking about those experiments that do that sort of thing. What's going on here is that you have a, a virtual reality. And in virtual realities, there's this problem called video lag. Video lag is when your elf, you tell your elf to jump and he just stands still for about five seconds and then jumps later. It's video lag and it's because it takes time for the signal to get to the server and the server signal to get back to you. It takes time and that's latency. And if your computer's really slow, you get more latency. If the network's really slow, you get more latency and so on. Well, the same sort of thing happens in our virtual reality. So our virtual reality, when you have to raise your hand when the bell rings, our virtual reality gets that slow electromechanical biological machine starting to go so that when the bell rings, you will have a reasonable reaction time to it. It won't be like the bell rings and then a second later you put your hand up. 
if, if your reaction times were that slow, there's all kinds of things you couldn't do. We as people need to be able to react to things much more quickly than that. Otherwise, we would be dysfunctional here. We certainly wouldn't drive cars and fly airplanes and do that kind of stuff. We also wouldn't run and juggle and do a lot of the other things we do. Our dexterity would seem to you know, go to zero if we didn't have something to correct this, this video lag. So what happens is this is a virtual body, right? It's just a virtual body. So the calculations that run this virtual body until this virtual body, it's not that it tells the body to move. The body isn't moving. It's the data, the data in the data stream, right? It's getting ready. It's got a rule set. The rule sets biology, which means all these slow electromechanical processes have to start happening in the body. Okay. It's just being calculated. Well, they got to start those calculations because it's a slow process because the you know, this hormone has to secrete something that gets in the bloodstream, that gets delivered to the muscle, that tells the muscle to energize, that makes this happen, that causes that potential, that gets the arm ready to move, and all of that has to happen. So where does the bell ringing come from? Well, it's also a virtual bell and a virtual bell ringer, and the larger consciousness system is playing all ends of the game. So it knows it's, it's doing a virtual bell and a virtual ring. And the virtual response to the, of the virtual body to that, well, in order to keep those responses such that, that uh, we can function well, you have to start, the computer starts working on that motion to generate it according to the rule set and the biology um, before the bell rings. So it's just that they don't understand the larger consciousness system. They think that our little, little C consciousness in our head, our awareness, is the only consciousness there is. They don't see that the whole thing is computed in another system. So that's that's why that works that way. So it doesn't say anything at all about that we don't have free will. It's not easy to prove that we don't have free will. It's easy to believe that we don't have free will if you don't understand the experiment and what's the causality is in the in the experiment. So that's that's basically know what's going on there's just a time lag there that that uh, makes it look like precognition is happening but remember it's all virtual reality if you had this virtual reality and you were playing you were playing elves and you were playing uh you know all kinds of other things if you had processes in that virtual reality okay in my virtual reality i have a rocket take off and fly but that's a very busy algorithm if i do that i got a lot of calculations to do to make that rocket start up that's that's hard well, I see my rocket's about going to have to start up soon, so let me get my calculations going to get that going so that it'll it'll work better and I won't have this this delay time. So that's basically what's happening in, in that. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. Matter of fact, it's easy to logically prove that determinism doesn't make any sense. Now, it's not logically easy to prove that it's false and impossible because... You know, it's one of the you know it's hard to prove anything, but it's it's very easy to show that it's unlikely, and that it doesn't make any sense. Determinate determinism has no purpose. There is no function. There is no change. There is no learning. All of these things require free will. A deterministic situation you can't learn. It's just determined. It's just going to happen this way. There's no learning. There's no choice. There's no growth. There's no change. There's no um, accumulation of anything. It's just going through the predetermined motions. Everything's just... So what's the purpose of that? Why would that be? What's the point of having all of this huge amount of stuff going on here that's us in our universe just to run through predetermined things that doesn't mean anything because it's already been calculated? I mean, where's the, you know, where's the purpose for that? Why is this being done? Well, we just don't know, but it must be being done. You know, well, it doesn't make any sense, you see. So it, it's, it goes nowhere. It's a, dead, it's a dead end. It doesn't function. It doesn't do anything, and you, there's no value in it. So, you, have, so you, you, know, you look at this, and you look at our lives, and you look at us, and you say, well, is there any value there? Has anything ever changed? Do you really get to make a choice? Could you have come here and... And, and be part of this, uh, this talk today or, or not, that just was not your choice. You just 
had to be here because you were destined to be here. Oh, you have choices. We all have choices. We know we have choices. This whole idea that there is no choice and everything is determined. There is no growth. There is no change. Everything is just programmed and doesn't, you know, like I say, you can't prove that that's false, but you can logically demonstrate that it doesn't make any sense. It's got no purpose. It's meaningless. There's lots of things like that that you can't necessarily prove are false, but they're completely meaningless. You know, you can't prove that pink elephants don't exist in the world and fly by flapping their ears. There's no way to prove that because you would basically say, well, you just haven't seen one yet. You know, they're very tricky and they don't let anybody see them, but they're there. So how do you prove that that's not true? Well, you can't. You say, you can't prove that's not true. You know, maybe they're pink elephants somewhere and they flap their ears and fly. And to prove that something's not true is almost impossible. But you can make a really good argument that it's silly and that it probably isn't like that because elephants are too heavy to flap their ears and fly and nobody's ever seen one that was pink and so on. So you can you can make it where it's unlikely and kind of absurd, but you can't really prove it. And determinism's like that. You can't prove it's wrong, but you can show that it's kind of silly and absurd and doesn't go anywhere, doesn't mean anything, has no purpose. Just like pink elephants that fly, you know, there's just nothing behind it that would make you think that was a good idea or, or, or a possibility. Thank you, Tom. Um, you've always said this is an efficient system, and it would make sense that um, a choice you would make, you would ask yourself the question, does it raise or lower entropy? Because that is needed for evolution. So that, that it logically makes sense. Yeah, the, the next is question is from... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. Uh, I'm the one delaying things here. Got into a, a you know, a, no, that's okay. a, a, got into a rant over that oh, double yeah. slit thing <laughs> and uh, wasted a lot of time. So uh, go ahead. You had you had something to say about the efficiency of the system. No, it is. You're right. It's a very efficient system, and things happen for a purpose. And and a lot of times the purpose just is because that's the way we are. Things happen here in this physical reality because we are the way we are. And that's why they're there. And that's efficient because it can't be anywhere else. It can't happen, you know, the way we aren't. I mean, we're here creating what we do and it has to be that way. And you can say, well, theoretically, it'd be nice if we were all just sweet people and, you know, cared and loved each other. That would be that would be more efficient. And you could say, yeah, but that would be false. It's not who we are. You know, we got to grow up to that. So it's as efficient as it can be in the senses that uh, it is what it is because of the way we are. Okay, the next question comes from Polly. How to deal with emotional situations and learn to overcoming and to and to learn how to overcome fear? Um, if I'm immersed in strong emotions during certain situations, what would you recommend to do in such a situation? Negative emotions are usually created by some underlying fear. He assumes. I believe the way that the way how how we deal with our emotions will influence the underlying, the underlying fear. Um, and then he lists, uh, would you, you know, deny it with force and ignore it, acknowledge and act on the emotion based on the current state of being, redirect focus onto something else, calm and return to the situation, or detach from it, stay with it but don't act on it? Well, that depends on the situation. You know, and there's nothing wrong with strong emotion. It's just a strong negative emotion that's the problem. And it's not a problem because it's strong. It's a problem because it's negative. You know, you can be very happy and you can be full of joy and you're going to have lots of emotion. You know, being uh, not having fear and not having ego doesn't mean that you've turned into, a, you know, a, an emotionless, uh, joyless zombie. You can have you can be emotional without any negativity. And that's a fine thing to be. Now, when you're, when you're emotional and it's negative, when you find dislike and anxiety and anger and all those kinds of things that tend to be strong emotions, then there is a fear behind them. And it's easy to find the ego behind them and then look for the fear behind the ego. And how you deal with it just depends on the situation. All of the things he mentioned are probably good ways to deal with some things. So sometimes if it, you may have a situation where you just kind of... <sighs> Uh, you know, recognize it, accept it, that that is your feeling, and then let it go. Maybe that would be a way to, to deal with it. But eventually, however it is you deal with it, you know, he just named that as one. He also meant, you know, stuff it down, uh, 
if you're in a situation where you feel like to reach out and smack someone and you know, a violent response, then that would be one maybe you need to just stuff down because uh, that wouldn't be one, well, let's go just do it and see what happens. It might not be a good idea. So it depends on the situation you're in as to how to react to it. Different ways work for different things. But the major point is that if all you do is act, deal with it enough to get by, but don't deal with it in the way to get rid of it, don't deal with it in a way to find the ego and then find the fear and then let it go, get rid of it so you don't react that way, then you're not doing much. So if all you do is every time you get angry, you suppress it, well, that makes you a more civilized person. You don't go around punching people or hollering or screaming or doing that kind of thing, but it doesn't help you grow up any. All you've done is is civilize yourself to where you're you're more enjoyable for other people to be around, and that's a good step, but it doesn't help you grow up if all you're doing is suppressing it. So suppressing it is not – that's dealing with it in a way. Okay, you feel like punching somebody out because they said something you didn't like. Well, you can suppress that, but don't just suppress it until it goes away and then go on and forget about it. If you have to suppress it, then – Find out why did you get so upset about that? What was that deal? And how can you deal with it? Maybe the way you deal with that is just remove yourself from that situation. Don't put yourself in that situation. Don't hang out with that particular crowd. Don't, you know, do something different. How can you deal with that? And it's a matter of taking responsibility for how you act, how you feel. And don't say, well, yeah, I got angry, but he made me angry. He did you know, such and such. And that's why I got it. Nobody makes you angry. You get angry because you choose to be angry. You choose to be angry because you don't have, you know, uh, enough or you have too much entropy in your in your consciousness. Let's put it that way. That's why you choose to be angry. You need to let that ego and fear go and not just stuff it, walk away from it and let it smolder under the rug. That'll just drive you nuts. That eventually will all come out later and bite you. Things stuck under the rug sneak out at night and bite. Sneak out when you're 40 and 50 and 60 years old and you're not so good about keeping stuff under the rug anymore and you get cranky and unpleasant and so on. It comes out later. So you got to deal with it in a sense of getting rid of it, not just getting it out of the way. But getting it out of the way is step one. You know, It's better to say, well, I think I want to punch this guy. So I'm going to punch him first and then I'm going to think about whether I should have done it, you know, it's better to better to stuff that one for a while until you get under control and then think about it. So yeah, pushing it, pushing it down is sometimes the best thing to do. Now, if it doesn't have to do with something like being violent, maybe uh, it's like dealing with that right, right then and there rather than pushing it down for a while. So whatever the situation calls for, there's probably a thousand different ways to approach a thousand different kinds of things that get you upset. So I can't tell you anything about the approach. That's situation specific. But I can say that you have to generally, eventually, not a general, you have to eventually end up getting rid of it or you haven't really infected you, affected your growth any. Just suppressing it isn't enough. Right. The next question comes from Lawrence. Um, Tom speaks about the dying process and afterlife reality frame where we transition to after we leave our physical bodies when we are ready to get back in the game and have another life packet upon making arrangements to get back into the PMR. Does higher consciousness system of which we are a part conduct like a, a search for the right... Um, yeah, the right situation. To fetus, the right... The right, right situation that uh, could be a potential match for the next yeah. incarnation. Yes, it does. It's not entirely random. And how random it is depends on what your needs are as far as growing up. So in the very beginning, if you are just getting into this, uh, uh, these kinds of PMR experience packets, it probably is more or less random because it doesn't really matter much. All you need is experience. You know, you have so little experience that you just need experience. So you just kind of get... You know, it's a jump out, jump in. And when you jump in, you just jump in anywhere. It doesn't really matter. Uh, matter of fact, the more different situations you jump in, the better. You know, the more varied they are, just just get some experience. So then there's not a whole lot of planning going on with it. But after you've been around for a while and, and you've developed your quality 
to the point that you have very specific issues you want to work on, then they will try to pick very specific situations for you to become a part of in order to help you optimize your probability of success with that issue. So then you may end up in a, in a, uh, in a situation that's kind of custom fit for you. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll always work out that well because you still have free will and you can still refuse to grow up and, and you cannot grab the opportunity, but at least the opportunity's there. So it depends on what your issue is. You know, if your issue is uh, just, you know, being kind to people and thinking of others, well, you can do that in any situation. You know, you don't have to be any place special to deal with that one because that opportunity is everywhere for everybody all the time. Doesn't matter whether you're an Eskimo or, you know, somebody lives on the equator. Being nice to people and, and interacting, thinking of others is a, is a thing that can happen. Now, maybe the one place you wouldn't want to be is in a cave by yourself because that requires being with other people, you see. But 99.999% of all the possibilities out there would serve you well. It wouldn't mean, you know, any of them would do. But if you have a very specific issue dealing with a very specific thing, you might need to pick a very specific, you know, scenario to get into. But that's why I say it's, it's only after you've evolved enough that you have these specific issues that you would do that. But just the system tends to pick out something that would seem to be a good fit for you. And then that's where, that's where you go. There's a lot to learn there. But sometimes it's more random than others because it just depends on how, you know, what your issues are and how specific do you need it and what are you trying to learn. For the most part, they're good lessons for everybody everywhere. There's hardly anything where there's no, nothing for you to learn. You know, that's a, I can't imagine of a, a situation you go into where there's really nothing to learn. There's something to learn everywhere. So it's not that critical. But when it is more critical, then yes, the system does custom fit the situation. Sometimes people will incarnate together just because they make a good team. They bring out, they challenge each other in ways that helps growth rather than challenge each other in ways that help de-evolution. You know, they challenge ways that helps them to grow up and they may work as a team just because that's, they seem to be successful that way. So you can, it can be more or less planned. Depends. Typically it's probably not all that planned. Because typically it doesn't really matter. There's great opportunities everywhere. All right, Tom. Since we were speaking of reincarnation, uh, Carol on uh, YouTube made a comment on some of the uh, videos that where you mention reincarnation, and this kind of fits in with what we're talking about. We have such an identity here, and we have such a um, hold on not only our identity, but our family lineage. She says, so Tom, all of what you are saying seems to turn the notion of ancestry and family lineage on its head. I haven't heard any mention of ancestry, specifically in any of your talks. Can you speak to this? I think what she means is we are not really our lineage. It can be that way, but um, for diversity, um, probably not. What do you think? Yeah, by, by lineage, if she's talking about physical reality uh, um, lines, you know, family trees, that sort of thing, yeah, then that really is not a, so much of an issue other than genetics. You know, genetics is an issue. If you, if you come, let's say you're a consciousness and you're going to get into this game and you pick a particular spot to get into, Okay, a particular individual that's, let's say, a particular fetus, as was said before. If you pick that and that's going to be your avatar, uh, well, then the rule set is going to limit that. You know, there's some restrictions, some limitations on what the genetics of those two parents would produce in that particular avatar. So you have that connection. So, yes, you pick up some of some of those things. Um, so that you get in, you get that avatar, but that avatar is constrained. You know, if both the parents are tall and redheaded, you have a much higher probability of being tall and redheaded than if they were both short and, you know, and dark haired. So yes, you do have some that way that passes on genetically through the family tree. So you can trace genetics through family trees and see that, that, uh, you know, great, great grandma has the same kind of, you know, look or face or hair or something as, as uh, you do. 
You know, that's, that's the way genetic works. But as far as consciousness goes, you don't have, you know, you don't have that kind of a, a family tree going on. A consciousness, that consciousness that, that comes in, you know, with those two tall redheads, you know, that may have been a, a different sex, a different race, you know, a different place last time. You know, it doesn't fall into any family tree. You know, it's hard to say where that, that, so the consciousness is not like that. Yes, it's, it's diverse. It's diversity. It goes wherever you need to go. The, the family tree stuff is just in the, the rule set. And the rule set has to keep track of genetics in lines because that's part of the rule set for biology. You know, there's only certain ways those chromosomes can go together to produce something. And what they produce depends in part of what they, you know, what material they have to work with. So I don't know what to, what to tell her, but we have, we have this idea that the people we love are always going to be attached to us forever as far as the consciousness goes. You know, my children, my parents, you know, my, my, my spouse, you know, we will always be together through all time. It's a very romantic notion, but it generally doesn't work that way. Now, as I just said before, sometimes people can incarnate together and they may have a whole series of things together. And that may be by choice because it's good for their learning, but it's not that the people that are your loved ones and the closest ones to you will hang close to you. You know, they'll be your children forever. You know, they're not going to be your children forever. They're your children now. When you come back through here, you know, they're not just going to be your children again and your children again. And it just goes on and on. And you're a happy little family forever and ever sitting on a cloud, you know, taking harp lessons. That's a nice thought, but it doesn't work that way. And their consciousness is here to have experience. And the you cannot uh, have that kind of varied experience you want if you don't, you know, if you don't have the diversity, if you don't get out and mix it up and go other places. So the, we go to where we go for a challenge, not because of, oh, that was, you know, that was my Aunt Susie. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to incarnate and be just with Aunt Susie because that's my favorite aunt. Well, where's the growth in that? You need to go to where you need to go to grow up as much as you can grow. You know, take a challenge. There's, there's, there's just constraints with no payoff otherwise. I'm not quite sure where she's coming from. She sounds a little sad that, you know, that present associations don't last forever. And maybe that is sad for people because they have very strong attachments. But it's, it, um, it really needs to be it's more effective and more efficient. You know, if each time you, you get into a situation where you have lots of challenges, things you have to learn. I think too, she was alluding to the fact that um, there is a physical lineage, but there is also your, your saying and the way she interpreted it, there is a, an NPMR lineage as well. There's a, a progression or a diversity that way. And they're two different things. Yeah, they're very different things. Now, in the, the lineage mm -hmm. in NPMR is that here you are, an individuated unit of consciousness. You have a thousand lives. And the lineage is that all thousand of those lives have made you what you are. All of the choices that you've made through all 1,000 lives have brought you to who and what you are right now. So there's the lineage. That's the, that's the, that's the accumulation. But those 1,000 lives, all 1,000 of them may have never, you know, interacted with the same people again or each other. So the lineage, the accumulation on the non-physical side is through all the roles we play accumulated in one individuated unit of consciousness. And all of that builds up to a, a line, if you will. Here's my, here's my line of my last 1,000 incarnations. That's my history, my line, and I'm the product of that line. Not the, not the genetic product of that line, but the, you know, the uh, consciousness product of that line, the choice product of that line. So consciousness has its own growing up lineage, if, like you say, whereas over on the physical side, we're talking about the lineage is all genetic. It's all rule set stuff. It's, you know, great grandmother had red hair, you know, so now my, my, my child has red hair because that was her, you know, you know, got that, that genes from her. So one's physical and the other's is non-physical. I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly what she was referring to. Lawrence has another question also, the larger consciousness system in love. Now, Pauli had quoted you as 
um, defining love as the theoretical end result of a process fractal, process fractal that lowers entropy. Um, now, Lawrence's question, Tom speaks on the larger consciousness system as being a system of love. Since the word love takes on different meanings, is there a specific meaning of love as it relates to the larger consciousness system? Could love be defined as existing forever without deletion? Um, well, it could. That, that's, a, that's maybe one way to come at it. Uh, in general, what I say is that love is the nature of a low entropy consciousness. So... What I mean by that is take a consciousness, take an individuated unit of consciousness and take away all the fear. So there is no fear. Well, what's left is love. Once you take away all the fear, you've taken away all the high entropy stuff. And what's left then is, is, is love. So it's not that, that the love has to be made. It's that we need to get rid of the fear. And without the fear, then we interact caringly about other. See, it's about us. The fear is what, our fear is what makes it all about us because we're afraid we're not going to get what we need, what we have to have, the stuff we deserve and all that kind of stuff. And when you get rid of that fear, then you have you know, kind of an open door to being loved. The actions you take are not fear-based. They will kind of naturally be love-based. That's kind of who we are. We interact. And if we don't interact about ourselves, then we're interacting about, you know, with others doesn't mean everything you do that's concerned yourself is fear-based. You know, we have to take care of ourselves too. We have mortgages to pay and, you know, clothes to buy and things to do that we have to be aware of ourselves. I'm not saying that, but it's that awareness in the service of fear is ego. Get rid of the fear, you get rid of the ego. So love is the, is the nature of a low entropy consciousness. So it's just our fundamental nature to be love if we can get rid of the fear. That's the way I would say it and the best way that I would define it. And yes, love tends to persist. You know, you say that it would go on forever. It's not going to get deleted. That's true. And that love is, is the success story. That's consciousness evolving. You know, that's the, uh, uh, that's the winner. That's the succeeder. So it's not, it's not something that's going to get deleted. It's something that's going to get encouraged.